Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, September 5th, 2019. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writer Huai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. All right, guys, so let's jump right into the news today. Uh, HT, yesterday afternoon, we uh, we learned some interesting news about the future of Ben Wheatley, a director who's done a bunch of stuff that we've liked, um, but this is sort of a surprising new project for him. What is he going to be directing next? Ben Wheatley has been tapped to direct the next Tomb Raider sequel, starring Alicia Vikander as the titular um, treasure hunter and video game character. MGM confirmed that it was uh, had set the sequel for Alicia Vikander's Tomb Raider for a release date of March 19, 2021, and that Ben Wheatley, who you may know from the directing films like High Rise and the excellent Free Fire, will be directing this film. Uh, Jacob, I have to throw this to you because I know that I didn't even see the Alicia Vikander Tomb Raider, but I know that you did and you kind of enjoyed it, right? Yeah, I think Tomb Raider movie's pretty good. It's not great, but it's pretty good. It's better than most video game movies. But for me, the real news here is Ben Wheatley because Ben Wheatley owns, um, I think, uh, Kill List, one of his second movie, is in my top 15 of all time. And I love Free Fire. I love High Rise. Uh, Sightseers, his dark comedy from about 10 years ago, maybe, is outstanding he is a pitch black very funny very brutal director and i I did not see him making a tomb raider movie uh but he's making with amy jump uh who's written a lot of his movies and this is such a bizarre pairing and i'm glad to see wheatley you know making something big you know as opposed to being stuck you know in not stuck but working exclusively in small movies but i do not know what ben wheatley's tomb raider looks like and that's kind of exciting so yeah, oh, I ahead. also um I also uh, saw the first 2018 Tomb Raider and I actually quite liked it. It's not you know a great movie per se, but it's probably in the higher tier of video game adaptations, which is not saying much. But it's you know a solid film, and I would say that it's one of the best video game adaptations just because it made me really want to play the video game. <laughs> so um yeah, I'm really interested to see where uh, Ben Wheatley takes this because like Jacob said, he's very like 
blackly comic kind of director. I've only seen Free Fire, but I love that movie. And um, I hope that if, you know, this movie, if the sequel turns out good, then he can use it as a launching pad for a Hollywood career because he's kind of been working on the down low, mostly in the UK and everything and in indie films. So it'll be interesting to see, like, if this helps, you know, launch his career in some way. Yeah, I know that he's directing a remake of uh, Rebecca coming up. So you should be interested in that. I know. I Um, love that book. So and I absolutely love the Hitchcock version, too. So, yes, I'm very excited about that. (laughs) Um, Jacob, I think last we heard he was developing a remake of The Wages of Fear and like a a monster hunting movie called Freak Shift. There was some talk, I think, uh, early last year that he may be in contention for a Marvel movie, like with all of those things you know, potentially, uh, you know, that he that he could be juggling or in contention for a, a Tomb Raider. Th- I mean, I just can't get over this. A Tomb Raider sequel, no less. Like, what do you, uh, is this something that you're, um, you know, would you rather see him do something like this just for the curiosity factor? Or would you, you know, are you sort of, is a part of you sad that um, maybe some of his more personal projects might be delayed because of this? My pet theory here, and this is me pulling this out of thin air, is that since Amy Jump is also writing the script, that this is a big Hollywood offer that let him have the most breathing room. I mean, you make a Marvel movie and you're working in a Marvel house style, you're working for Kevin Feige, you are making some, you're making a product that has to fit in an assembly line of what those movies are. And the assembly line makes things that we enjoy, but assembly line nonetheless. Whereas Tomb Raider was enough of a hit to get a sequel, but it wasn't huge. Like People aren't like in love with that first movie. So I wonder if they are taking a shot with Ben Wheatley saying, hey, come do something crazy with this and get people interested. So that's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping this, he, he took this because it's the one that let him be himself the most. Uh, I'm going to throw out a light spoiler warning for the first Tomb Raider and ask you guys a question. Did Walton Goggins survive the end of the first Tomb Raider? Uh. Very dead. Oh, damn. I, <laughs> I was, know. I was really hoping that Walton Goggins could uh, could unite with Ben Wheatley, because I feel like that would be an interesting pairing. Oh, that would but, be great. Uh, maybe he could come back as a ghost or something. <laughs> but, uh, you know, crazier things have happened in Tomb Raider mythology, that's for sure. So uh, let's move on to the Crazy Rich Asians sequel. Um, an interesting story came out yesterday about writer or co-writer Adele Lim, who was the, um, the only... Uh, the first movie's only Asian writer. She co-wrote the first film with Peter Chiarelli. Uh, Apparently, she has left the sequel. She was supposed to be um, coming back to co-write the sequel. I think both... I think this movie's supposed to have two sequels that are going to be shooting back-to-back sometime in 2020. And um, this story broke yesterday that Lim essentially walked away from the sequel after realizing that there was a huge pay disparity between what Warner Brothers offered to her and what they offered to Peter Chiarelli, her co-writer. They apparently offered him 800000 to $1 million in the, the early uh, initial offers, but only 110000 for Adele Lim. And uh, Chiarelli has written... Um, movies before. He he has a story by credit on Now You See Me 2. He most famously wrote The Proposal, which is a successful rom-com with, um, that starred Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock back in, I think, 2009 is when that came out. Um, and Lim came from the world of TV. She wrote for shows like Private Practice and Lethal Weapon and Life on Mars. Um, Crazy Rich Asians was her first um, screenplay credit. But... Uh, Man, yeah, this this is like a, a pretty huge disparity, and apparently Warner Brothers basically said to her representatives that these quotes are like industry standards. These are the ranges that you should exp- you know you should expect based on experience and stuff like that. Um, they said, quote, making an exception would set a troubling precedent in the business. So 
for me, the really interesting part is, so this happened, they made this offer, she realized the disparity and decided to leave the project. All of that happened last fall. And they spent five months looking for another writer of Asian descent to sort of take Lim's place in this. And the studio ended up coming back to her in February of this year and offering her something that was closer to Chiarelli's offer, but she still turned it down. And I, I feel like that is... Um, you know, says a lot about her character because it probably would have been very, very easy for her to just accept that second offer. But it's clear that this is an important topic for her that she's willing to pass on a presumably a, a pretty big payday and instead sort of speak out in the hopes of trying to like level the playing field just a little bit. So I wanted to, to sort of toss this out to you guys. Um, what do you make of this? H.A., I know you're a big fan of Crazy Rich Asians. What do you, what do you, uh, what was your reaction to this? I do think it's significant that Adele Lim is the only Asian writer on this film, and yet she still was offered such a minor fraction of Chiarelli's uh, pay. And the fact that that was the case even after the first film was such a success uh, speaks, um, you know, widely about the the structure, sta- the industry standards that the um, studio was talking about. I think that. Um, yeah, Adele Lim probably was in the right in this case, and uh, it shouldn't. They shouldn't have approached the studio shouldn't have approached it in this way, especially for a film that is so monumentally monumentally important to the Asian American demographic. Yeah, for sure. And and we should note too that um, apparently Peter Chiarelli had offered to split his fee with Lim, but she. Uh, I'll just read her quote here. She said, Pete has been nothing but incredibly gracious, but what I uh, make shouldn't be dependent on the generosity of the white guy writer. If I couldn't get pay equity after Crazy Rich Asians, I can't imagine what it would be like for anyone else, given that the standard for how much you're worth is having established quotes from previous movies, which women of, of color would never have been hired for. There's no realistic way to achieve true equity that way. So yeah. it, it really seems like she's... Um, you know, like taking a stand on this and, and trying to like bang the drum and, and let people know what's going on here. And hopefully, you know, those sorts of uh, industry standard practices might change a little bit because it's kind of, it's kind of nuts thinking about how successful that first film was. Yeah, and... it's nuts, too, because, you know, Crazy Rich Asians was uh, was hailed as such a watershed moment for Asian American representation in a major Hollywood film. And yet behind the scenes, they're still not really doing justice by their lone Asian writer on the staff. Yeah, yeah. And she, she also said, uh, quote, being evaluated that way can't help but make you feel that that is how they view my contributions. And that's the end of her quote. But she also said something about how um, she thinks that women and people of color are often referred, uh, re- regarded as, quote, soy sauce, people who are hired to sprinkle culturally specific details on a screenplay rather than credited with the substantive work of crafting the story. And I thought that was a really astute observation. Like, how many times have we heard about, you know, studios hiring, you know, X person to come onto this project? And it's like, oh, they're really good at doing this one tiny thing. And it's like them, you know, sort of, yeah, sprinkling their their touches across it. But um, yeah, if there's like a, a huge uh, pay disparity there, it's not like she was just brought on for touch-ups, you know, she was like co-writing this whole thing. So um, yeah, just a sort of a bummer overall, but I'm glad that to hear that she's taking a stand and, and hopefully by us talking about it and everybody else talking about it, it will sort of uh, raise awareness, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, and, and maybe move the needle just a little bit. But um, in the meantime, Adele Lim is writing the script for Raya and the Last Dragon, which is a, a Walt Disney animation movie that we talked about um, when we were covering D23. So you can read more about that in the article at SlashFilm.com. Um, Jacob, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, my thought is that this sucks. 
and it's shameful, and there's no excuse for it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there you go. Why why didn't I go to you first, Jacob? All you had to say was that, and then we could have just moved on. um, Okay, so let's talk about The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, uh, Margaret Atwood, the author of the original book, uh, announced last year that she was writing a sequel to the acclaimed novel, and it's called The Testaments, and it is also set in the oppressive religious community of Gilead, where a lot of The Handmaid's Tale takes place. Um, we learned yesterday that MGM and Hulu are teaming up to adapt this new book, which is supposed to be coming out um, sometime this month. Uh, I think it's September 10th is the official release date for that new book. Um, MGM and Hulu are teaming up to adapt that book for Hulu, but it's still unclear at this point whether this um, new story is going to be worked into the existing show or if it's going to be a separate show altogether, because The Testaments takes place 15 years after the uh, original novel ended, and that is basically 15 years after season one of the show ended because the first season of the handmaid's tale on hulu stuck very very close to a a direct adaptation of the book even ending on like the same image of of offred uh slash june getting in the back of a van and her fate being ambiguous um obviously we know what happens after that because uh bruce miller the showrunner and his team have uh, continued the show on. The third season just ended. We talked about that not too long ago on the show. Um, it's been renewed for a fourth season. Miller has talked at one point about wanting to do up to 10 seasons of the show, which I find personally kind of nuts. Um, but uh, but yeah, this, this new book, it, it takes place 15 years after the events of the first book. And it actually is, uh, it features three different narrators, a young woman who is raised in Gilead, a Canadian teenager who learns that she was actually born there, and Aunt Lydia, who is one of the sort of villains of the first book and um, is played by Anne Dowd in The Handmaid's Tale. So, uh, H.T., I wanted to throw this out to you. Do you, are, are you interested in this at all? Like, um, I know you, you read the book, right? The first uh, Margaret Atwood's yeah. Handmaid's Tale book? Yes, I did. Yeah. So are you interested in, A, reading this book, uh, and then, B, like, seeing maybe some of these story elements either rolled into The Handmaid's Tale as it currently exists as a show or uh, potentially as a separate show? Um, I am interested in reading the book. I think that Margaret Atwood, after seeing her um, her novel being adapted to the series, kind of regained an interest in Gilead. And now with the show and the story's themes being so relevant and timely today, uh, it just was like perfect timing for her to write a sequel. Um, I don't know how I would feel about it being rolled into the show as it currently is, because I have my issues with the series. Uh, I do think that it's been, it spins its wheels way too much. And I would be rather... I'd rather be interested in seeing just a one-off adaptation of this book Um, because I do think that The Handmaid's Tale works more as a parable versus a long-running story, Mm -hmm. I guess you would say. So um, I'm not really sure. I could see it being folded into the series as it is. It it kind of feels like it's ripe for that, but um, it just, you know, would feel like it would take a backseat to June's story as all the other subplots in the series do. And, but I would be interested to see how Anne Dowd acts out or um, gets to play out the uh, on Lydia story because she's just so fantastic in that. So it would be really great to see her, you know, chew on some of that um, subject matter. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you on the Aunt Lydia thing. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like it could be the shot in the arm that the show needs. Like if they, 
and they probably aren't going to do this because the apparently the writers haven't had a chance to read the book yet because it's been so like uh, protected, you know, under lock and key um, that uh, even the writers of the, the Hulu show haven't had a chance to really dig into that yet. So they're not going to probably uh, incorporate much of the stuff in season four. But just from the outside looking in, I, I kind of would love to see a massive time jump, you know, multiple years in the future and and maybe like. Uh, not even pick up with Offred's story at all because it seems like there's been so much wheel spinning with her that they don't really know what they want to do with that character anymore. And it would remind me almost of like uh, Orange is the New Black where it's sort of like you think it's Piper Chapin's story at the very beginning, but it ends up being, you know, this broader tapestry of all these other more interesting supporting characters instead of just, you know, this this one uh, woman who is supposed to be is ostensibly the protagonist but um yeah i don't know i i could see it going either way as well so we'll have to keep people um apprised of what happens there um jacob have you caught up with the handmaid's tale yet i know that you were watching it uh at your own pace yeah i watched all season two and i i could not bring myself to watch season three even my wife who is a dedicated fan of the show like she was editing this season in her head it said said there's about eight episodes of story in a 13 episode season and i just when the show is this miserable and oppressive, it, stretching it out is just a painful, awful thing. I don't mind misery if it's well-paced, and Handmaid's Tale has not done that. So if this new book can provide them reason to actually have longer seasons or convince them to have shorter seasons with more stuff going on, maybe it's a good thing. I don't know. I, for now, I am tapping out of the show. Yeah, and it, it should be noted, too, that uh, Margaret Atwood herself apparently has realized uh, or, or at least taken take note of the show's pacing problems because she told Time Magazine, she said, quote, they can't keep Offred and Gilead for many more seasons or a certain amount of wheel spinning will be going on. They have to move her along, and I've given them lots of ways of how that would happen. So that was her quote, and I mean... So I feel like maybe her book is being like, okay, this is what you can do instead, yeah. offering them, yeah, an out in a way. Yeah, yeah, so uh, we'll have to see, we'll have to track that and see what happens there. But um, let's talk about another book series, uh, let's talk about Earthsea, and this is a, a property that I have heard about, but really know nothing about, but H.C., I know that you've read these novels and uh, a TV series is in the works, so tell me the story here, what's going on? Yes. Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea series is a collection of fantasy novels set in this archipelago of islands uh, where magic sort of lays in delicate balance. I consider it some of the most essential pieces of high fantasy storytelling right up there with Lord of the Rings. Um, But it's often really forgotten in a lot of uh, classrooms and bookstores, which I find uh, a real travesty. And um, it hasn't really been done justice on the screen either. There was a uh, sci-fi channel series a couple of years ago, as well as a Studio Ghibli animated film. But now uh, it is being developed into a new TV series by A24 with Nightcrawler producer Jennifer Fox producing the series. Jennifer Fox originally optioned the rights to the Earthsea series last year and actually received the blessing from Le Guin before her death in 2018. Um, She received the blessing actually to make it into a feature film, but the... uh, project has since been redeveloped into a TV series. And um, 
It doesn't yet have a network, but A24 is the studio that is developing and financing the series. And um, uh, Le Guin's son also gave his support to this project as well. Um, I'm really excited about this, actually, because, like I said, I'm a, I'm a fan of the series. I've only actually read The Wizard of Earthsea and Tombs of Achuan, but they made such a huge impression on me at a young age. And... Um, I really enjoy Le Guin's writing. I think it's just so fantastic and so lyrical. And she has such a rich world building, uh, like a skill for uh, rich world building, um, that I can't wait to see how this appears on screen. A24 doesn't have a lot of experience, I think, doing like big budget fantasy stuff. But they are, they really have nailed down just like, storytelling and genre storytelling in general so i'm excited to see where they go with this um jacob have you read these novels by any chance i have not this timing is perfect because this is total coincidence over my over the weekend uh at my my birthday party my sister and her husband gave me a hardcover collection of the complete earthsea (laughs) so wow i'm I'm actually really envious because every time i go to bookstore and i'm like hey do you guys have any ursula k Le Guin?" they're like who's that i get really upset so this is something that i hope will bring more attention to the series and hopefully maybe i'll borrow that that collection from you jacob well right now it's it's like it's all the novels and short stories in one hardcover illustrated and it's normally 60 bucks on sale like 27 on amazon right now so maybe we should go buy a copy right now before everyone on the show who's listening does it <laughs> um I'll, I'll give you a second before i publish this episode hc to give you a, a brief uh jump on everybody else yeah. <laughs> um give me like the i don't know like a one paragraph hook of like what this thing is actually about and and why you like it so much so each of the novels in this series actually follows a different story and different protagonists. Um, but all the protagonists in the series kind of overlap and intersect and show up in various novels. But the uh, story itself deals more with um, this kind of idea of magic as a pacifying force and not as a force of power. And it's something that Ursula K. Le Guin keeps going back to um, and kind of likes to explore the idea of like human nature and nature itself being in balance through magic. Uh, it's really beautifully made, like crafted story. I can't really summarize everything for you, but one thing that I think you will find interesting is that uh, Le Guin made a con- concerted effort to populate her um, Earthsea series with people of color and characters of color because she had said in the past that she doesn't like the assumption that fantasy is always predominantly white. So her character in Tombs of Atuan, for example, is a young woman who is darker skinned, a person of color. And that, um, that race actually plays like a big role in the, um, the conflicts and the uh, tensions between all of the characters in it. It's a real sprawling series. I can't like give you one single hook, yeah. <laughs> but I will say that it's something more, I think, uh, even though it employs a lot of the typical fantasy uh, tropes, actually Wizard of Earthsea is how in in high school I learned about the um, hero's journey. Like that's actually how I was taught to me in like ninth grade class. Oh, wow. So it has, yeah, it's, it's actually like, I feel like it was a formative basis for a lot of those tropes because it was it, the first books were published in like the 1960s, and um, it kind of formed our ideas of how fantasy um, and high fantasy are today. Um, so it's, but it still is like so progressive in like all the 
character the diverse characters and its ideas of magic being something that's like a peacekeeping balance hmm. so um it's a it's a great series and i highly recommend it there's like so many influences that it's um cast on other uh properties as well i think if you guys, if you guys remember aragon that completely ripped off wizard of Earthsea with its idea of naming as a as a tool of power so it's something that um you will recognize a lot of elements in if you ever read the Earthsea series, but it feels very new just because of how like ahead of its time and progressive it was. Cool. Uh, all right, so that's Earthsea coming uh, from A24. We don't know anything about like when we can expect to see this yet, but uh, it is in development, so uh, that sounds pretty exciting. Um, okay, let's move on to our last story, and that is that uh, Amazon has cast midsummer actor Will Poulter in its Lord of the Rings show. And the show itself is something that has is still largely shrouded in mystery. We don't know who Poulter is going to be playing in this thing. Um, we know that Australian actress Markella Cavanaugh, who I've never really heard of before, um, was in talks for this. But those two are the only cast members that have been mentioned at this point. Uh, we know that the show is supposed to be taking place in the Second Age, which is an era that's well before the events of The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. And recently we heard that Amazon only has the rights to depict events that occurred in the Second Age, meaning that like unless they secure um, additional rights, they won't really be able to show any of the, event, the events that we're familiar with from Lord of the Rings. Um, but uh, Will Poulter, I mean, he's a, a great young actor. He You might recognize him from um, his role, like I mentioned, in, in Midsummer earlier this year. He was in last year's uh, Black Mirror Bandersnatch. He was in We're the Millers and The Revenant. He's only 26 years old, but he's shown a lot of range and, and diversity in the type of roles that he's chosen. Uh, I had a chance to interview him for Midsummer earlier this year. I found him to be like a really, really smart, well-spoken dude. So I'm excited about this. What do you guys think? Uh, well, nice tie-in, too, is that he kind of made his breakout in the Narnia series, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Voyage of the Dawn Cheddar as a... Uh, oh, yeah, Eustace Scrub, Edmund? that's right. Yeah. Edmund, oh, not Eustace, sorry, yeah. Yeah, Eustace he was like Scrub. The, yeah. the cousin, yeah, that's right, wow. Yeah, the annoying cousin. He was great in the role, and he was actually <laughs> supposed to, um, you know, Eustace, Scrub actually takes, Eustace Scrub takes like a bigger role in later books that they did not end up adapting, so he gets his chance to be in a, another fantasy series. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. Um, Jacob, what do you think about Will Poulter, and are you uh, interested in this Lord of the Rings series? Oh, of course I am. I, I like Will Poulter. He's a very good actor, and I'm looking forward to him speaking in his English accent, because I think I've only ever heard him speak in American accent in roles. <laughs> uh, however, here's my question for you guys. Uh, Will Poulter has a very hobbity face. He has, he has all the round features you expect from a hobbit, but hobbits didn't really matter to the timeline of, of uh, Middle-earth at this point. So is he going to be a the rare, non-angular elf, or will he be a human? Discuss. Hmm. AC, what do you think? Oh, it's hard to say. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they managed to find a way to fold the Hobbits into the story just because we know the Hobbits so well. We love the Hobbits. And um, they would just be like a nice familiar uh, you know, addition to the story, even though they don't really play a part. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he were playing a Hobbit, but uh, I could see him as a human, too. Uh, I have no idea at this point, but it'd be fun to see like which creature he would play. Yeah, my wife just finished reading The Cimmerillion, and she was sort of telling me a little bit about it as she was reading, and, and she said that the Second Age, which is the, the events that are supposed to be depicted, or the time period anyway, in this new show, officially ends when Isildur slices the One Ring off of Sauron's hand, and we actually saw that in... 
uh, a flashback in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I just like knowing that that exists uh, in this time period and, and is technically something that's like on the table for them to be able to de- to depict if they want to. I'm wondering if um, if Will Poulter is going to be like Isildur himself or like maybe, you know, somebody sort of surrounding those events or if this is going to be something that takes place you know, well before Young the ending. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, he could be, uh, I think Will Poulter was actually up to play Pennywise in, um, in Kerry Fukunaga's version of it. So like he, he, he has that really, uh, um, malleable face. And I, I feel like he could, uh, get, um, a, a real good sense of darkness going there if he wanted to. Um, I, I don't know what Sauron would even really look like because I think that character never really got like a, a human um, form in any way, or at least a, we never saw his face, right, in, in the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So, um, yeah. Yeah, we presume him to be somewhat charismatic because he's able to rally together so many different types of species and creatures to his side and is able to convince people of his goodness, I think, for quite a bit before, you know, he turns. So it would be interesting. I, that would be a really meaty role for uh, Will Poulter if he were up for that Yeah, part. and this is apparently one of the leads in the series. So again, we don't know who he's playing, but uh, but that that could be. And, and Variety also pointed out in their um, report about him snagging this role that this was a huge win for Poulter because this part was apparently one of the biggest gigs in town, like one of the most coveted uh, jobs in, in town for people in his age range. So um, it certainly sounds like it could be a, a yeah a meaty role for him. So right, uh, Ben, I figured it out. Uh, will Poulter will be playing Sauron, but through motion capture, he's going to stand very still and be a tower with an eye above it. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. Oh man, what a waste. Uh, so JD Payne and Patrick McKay are overseeing the, uh, overseeing this series, and J.A. Bayona, who directed uh, Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom, is going to be directing. Uh, multiple episodes in the first season, so we're not sure exactly when that's supposed to be coming out. I think it might be 2020. It could be 2021, depending on how long it takes them to to shoot and get this thing together. But it's supposed to be, uh, you know, a massively expensive show on Amazon's part, and um, is definitely going to be, you know, one of their calling cards moving forward. I think so. Uh, we'll keep you posted on more casting news as it uh, slowly trickles in. Before we go, uh, Jacob, I, I wanted to give you just a, a quick chance to plug some of the uh, features that you have on the site. I know that tomorrow on the podcast we're going to talk about um, a lot of the stuff in more detail, but uh, what have you been up to recently? Well, this week I was allowed to post two set visits that I've been uh, <laughs> I've been uh, working on, one of which was the Creepshow set visit, which I talked about yesterday, and one of which is the Doctor Sleep set visit, the upcoming Shining sequel from Mike Flanagan. We wrote a number of articles. Uh, all of them are up on the site uh, as you hear this. And tomorrow on the show, I'll describe to you in great detail what it's like to be on one of the coolest film sets I have ever seen. All right. What a tease. Uh, so I think that's going to do it for today's episode of Classroom Daily. Let's tell people where they can find more of our work online. HC, let's start with you. You can find me writing every day at SlashFilm.com. And I'm on Twitter at HTranBuoy. Jacob? I'm on Slash Film every single day, and on Twitter, I'm Jacob S. Hall. You can find me writing at SlashFilm.com as well. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and you can find more about all of the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. 
Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. I'm sure we'll do a mailbag episode sometime soon. And uh, don't forget also to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That helps us out a ton. Tell your friends about the show. Spread the word any way you can. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.